It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Craig D. Lounsborough once said, Why is it that we don't worry about a compass until we're lost in a wilderness of our own making? I'm Rick, and this is not your Christian commentary. Typical Christian commentaries look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me today is Julie, sitting in for Jonathan. Hello, Julie. Hi, it's good to be here. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So, Julie, what is our topic for today? Am I my own worst enemy? And our theme text is Romans 7.15 from the New Living Translation. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Now, that doesn't sound very good. Am I I my own worst enemy? Coming up in today's podcast, life is full of friends and enemies. What do you do when your own worst enemy is you? How do you fight that? We're going to talk about this in about 15 minutes. Have you ever compared yourself to others who are more successful or more popular than you? Yeah, so how'd that turn out? Find out how to change the outcome of this kind of thinking in about 30 minutes. And finally, we all want some kind of beautiful, happily ever after for our future. But does this desire ever get in the way of what our life can actually offer? We're going to look into this issue in about 45 minutes, but right now, let's set some foundation. Life can be difficult. We are surrounded with issues, events, opinions, politics, and posts that continuously bring us stress and strain. As if that's not enough, we add to the frenzy by putting up self-designed roadblocks to block our own way. So why would we do that? Why would we make things harder for ourselves? Turns out, this is a common thing. The imperfect human mind can create all kinds of coping mechanisms that keep us from dealing with perceived trouble. While this sounds good, the problem is that our avoidance of perceived trouble often leads us directly into the path of real trouble. Essentially, we can at times become our own worst enemy. The bad news is we easily and often sabotage ourselves. The good news is because we do this to ourselves, we can also learn how to change that behavior. So today's podcast, folks, We'll focus on seven specific points from the Self-Esteem Workbook written by Glenn R. Schiraldi, Ph.D. We're going to look at seven of his automatic thoughts and distortions with biblical examples and solutions in hand. So that's, that's the content. That's what we're going to be working with. First, let's just lay a little bit more groundwork considering the issue of enemies, because we're talking about ourselves being our own worst enemy. Well, first of all, let's remember, Satan is our primary enemy. Uh, Julie, let's go to 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, Satan's our primary enemy. The world and its influence are our enemies as well. Julie, let's look at James chapter 4, the last part of verse 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we've got Satan and the world, and as the Apostle Paul told us in our theme scripture, we are also 
our own enemies. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 19 from the, uh, um, what's that, New what is that? New Living. New, New Living, Living Translation. New Living Translation. This is the context of our theme scripture. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And boy, Rick, this definitely sums up our lives. Yeah, there's a confusion. We have this confusion and we are a paradox within ourselves. So today we're going to focus on how to recognize and replace our own self-defeating thoughts. And this is such an important exercise because we all want to be useful in the hands of God. And there's great work to do in spreading the gospel, being a light in the world, helping others. And if we're wrapped up in our own perceived inadequacies and crushing unworthiness, we are blocking our ability to be used by God in our fullest capacity. And that is a huge point. The idea of this, folks, is to make sure that we are readily available in God's hands as tools. And when we get ourselves involved in these things, we take ourselves out of that environment. So pay close attention. There's a lot of awesome things to learn here. So let's go to our first automatic thought and distortion, and that is making feelings facts. And again, we're taking this from the self-esteem workbook, Glenn R. Schiraldi, PhD. Just we're going to take a snippet of his description. Making feelings facts is taking one's feelings as proof of the way things really are. For example, I feel like such a loser. I must be hopeless. I feel ashamed and bad. I must be bad. I feel inadequate. I must be inadequate. I feel worthless. I must be worthless. Okay, so that's the beginning, making feelings facts. And, we're, and, and, and when we look at this, here, here's the thing that we need to understand. Facts become inconvenient when our feelings are in control. And we need to... <laughs> that's well said. Well, and we need to understand the value of the facts and learn to separate facts from feelings. And in, in, in my experiences with helping folks just cope with their lives and the issues of life, one of the things that, that I am famous for saying, because it's so true, is, is what you're talking about a fact or is it a feeling? And digging down and finding, and if it's not a fact, and we say, okay, what do we have to do with that? We have to put it aside and get to the fact and put this, the feeling over there. Because the feeling can't drive us. It's really difficult. And we have to rise above that. Making feelings facts takes us away from the ability to see reality. So what about if we've held, let's say, a doctoral position all of our lives and we're shown something scripturally different? We might feel so strongly about holding onto tradition that we shut ourselves off to learning and growing in our knowledge. Like I'm thinking of the scriptural truth of hellfire. For example, that's one that people want to cling to, regardless of seeing the scriptural reasoning on that. And, and see, the fact versus feeling, when you find the scriptures don't teach that doctrine, sometimes the feeling says, well, I'm afraid to get rid of this because what if you're wrong and then I'm going to burn? And so, you know, you can see that the strength of the feelings, but we need to understand that the facts are what should drive us, especially as Christians and especially when it comes to biblical truth. So... 
Let's look at the distortion here in relation to making feelings facts. What is it? Insecurity and anxiety can reframe our reality in such a way that we instinctively seek to deny that reality. These feelings override truth and they are fundamentally destructive. Okay. Insecurity and anxiety reframe reality and we can no longer see it for what it really is. Let's go to an example. We're going to look at Peter, the Apostle Peter, in his denials of Jesus. His distortion was an overwhelming fear that produced in him a sense of hopelessness. So, Julie, let's go to Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Just give, give us an overview and some, some of the scriptures there. So this is one of Peter's lowest moments where he denied Jesus three times. And paraphrasing that scripture, first a servant girl announces in front of people that she saw Peter with Jesus, and he says, well, I don't know what you're talking about. So he walks away, but another servant girl accuses him in front of more people, and we pick this up in Matthew 26, verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Ugh, Peter lied and denied. Why? Why did he do this? He lied because of his fear. His fear overrode the facts of what Jesus had told him was going to happen. I mean, Jesus told him he was going to deny him, and he told him he prayed for him, and he would be okay. But he, the fear was too big. We make our feelings facts, and then we re, re, respond to those, and we get ourselves into deeper trouble. Our distortion of feelings override facts, and that inevitably, inevitably brings us sorrow and pain. This is big. We all do it. We have to be really careful. So the reality here, you, you talked about the distortion. The reality is we can face these destructive feelings and reduce their influence, but it takes work and humility. Forgiveness and truth are inherent in our Christian walk if we're willing to accept them. Forgiveness and truth, truth is fact. We need to latch on to those things, and we see Peter learn to do that in John 21, verses 15 through 17. And again, Julie, can you sum this one up for us? Sure. So this is one of those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus where he asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answers yes after each question, and Jesus gives him a slightly different responsibility in reply. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and tend my sheep. These three questions would have reminded Peter of those three denials we just talked about, but the fact was Peter was being recommissioned to do the work of the gospel. He wouldn't have to not let the mortifying guilt and shame prevent him from moving forward. Jesus was putting him back together. He was. Jesus was establishing the facts and putting the feelings aside. And Peter needed to respond to that. So the possibility is there. Forgiveness is there. We need to just step up and receive it and take our feelings and put them where they belong along the side. Don't deny that you have them. It's okay that you have them, but you don't have to follow them just because you have them. It comes down to following the facts, following truth. Peter's truth was vital that, that it, I'm sorry, Peter, it was, it was, Peter's truth was that he was vital, of vital importance to Jesus himself and to Christianity. 
That was the fact, and Peter did learn to live up to that. So we looked at the distortion of fact versus feeling, the reality of how to to deal with it. So now what we need to do is neutralize. We need to neutralize the distortions. And folks, we're not necessarily going to get rid of them, but we can neutralize them. We We can make them to have their effect not be so dramatic. And we neutralize these things by refocusing ourselves on reality. So how do we neutralize distortions and refocus on reality in relation to making feelings facts? I will work at distinguishing and separating my feelings from the facts of my experiences. And as a Christian, I will stand in the fact that the forgiveness I have comes through Christ. I will therefore put my best foot forward as I respond to reality. Respond to reality. Not how you feel. That's right. But respond to reality. Good scripture on this. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So the apostle is telling us you're slaves one way or another. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Am I a slave of my feelings or am I a slave to truth? Pick one because we will be a slave one to one or another. And if we are a slave to our feelings, let us graduate up to being a slave to truth because that will drive you to goodness where feelings generally won't. So, you know what? It's a scary thought to picture ourselves as slaves to our own feelings. Folks, pay attention. This is a wake-up call. So what about when things in my life really do look bad? How do I keep from making them worse? (laughs) This is a question that brings us to a lot of traps that look like answers. We often have preconceived notions about what to expect from life. These ideas feed our ability to see things positively or negatively. Unfortunately, we often adopt a distortion that buries any positive perspective. So when, when the question about you know, life looking bad, how do you keep them from, uh, keep from making it all worse? What we need to do is realize that our knee-jerk reaction oftentimes is going to make it worse. So we have to rise above that. Here we get into our second thought and distortion, and that is rejecting the positive. And once again, we're going to a snippet from the Self-Esteem Workbook by Glenn R. Shiraldi, PhD. Dwelling on the negative overlooks positive aspects. Here we actually negate positives so that our self-esteem remains low. For example, someone compliments your work. You reply, oh, it was really nothing. Anyone could do that. You discount the fact that you've worked long and effectively. No wonder accomplishments aren't fun. You could just as easily have replied, thanks, and tell yourself, I do deserve special credit for doing this difficult and boring task. You would give a loved one or friend credit where it's due. Why not do yourself the same favor? Christians are taught not to think highly of ourselves, more highly than we should. So we're taught beware of ego. So for some, it's really hard to accept a compliment because we try to downplay our accomplishments. Yeah, but let's understand, when someone is giving you a genuine compliment, there's an answer that always works with that. You know what the answer is? Oh, it was nothing? No, <laughs> that's <laughs> not pick, it. You picked the wrong girl for the job? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. No, because that's, that's, that's exactly the, the thing we're talking about, rejecting the positive. The answer is thank you. 
And, you know, if you're uncomfortable and you feel like, wow, you know, maybe I don't fully deserve it, say thank you. By God's grace, I was able to do that. Or thank you, so-and-so helped me, but thank you. I really appreciate you noticing. Don't take the compliment away because you want to acknowledge the other individual trying to build you up. Acknowledge that and take that and say thank you. This is a great way to help us not reject the positive. And it's so easy to do. Oh, you know, yeah, I know. I probably could have done better. I, you know, right. and, 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 and really we, we get, we get stuck. We get stuck with all those things. So I think if God is working with us through his son, then really any compliments are because of him, right? Because our talent comes right. from him. So we can give God the credit if you're uncomfortable with taking it ourselves. So just a quick story. Our family has a problem with gift giving. I know this seems ridiculous and we joke about it, but it's real. We pre-apologize for our gifts. So if I'm handing you a present, Rick, I'm saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. This is probably not what you wanted. I tried. I, I'm just not sure. You know what? I'm sure it's the wrong color. Here's a gift receipt. You can take it back. In fact, why don't you just not open it? I'll just take it back now. I've actually done that. And if they do open it and like it, I still, for some reason, am downplaying it. It's bizarre. And it happens with nearly every gift I give. So what you're doing is you're pre-setting up. First of all, there's two things. You're, 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 you're just trying to avoid making a mistake. All right. Right. And, and I want I them to have a good gift. But the other thing is you're pre-setting up their response. You're making it so I have to respond and say, oh, this is perfect. Uh, yeah, <laughs> We have to be careful. When we are rejecting the potential positive in a cir circumstance like that, you, you give your effort, say, man, I hope you love it. I hope you love it. And just leave it alone. Just let it be. And if they don't love it, okay, then you can apologize. But don't set up. To it makes me so uncomfortable. I, well, All right, I'm going to try to not pre-apologize. Okay. okay. All right. So let's go to the distortion here on rejecting the positive. Yeah, definitely. So we give credibility to our minimized view of the facts because this feels safer and more comfortable than facing the larger and more realistic picture. So simply stated, it's self-defeating and keeps us from being a useful tool in the hands of God. See, that's the key. When we reject the positive, it keeps us from being useful in the hands of God. That's how serious this is. And we can make fun of the, you know, the, the, the gift-giving thing, but when we reject the positive, we're taking ourselves out of use in God's hands. Don't do that. Let's look at an example. The Apostle Peter took a giant step of faith, and then he lost his focus. While Jesus was walking on the water, remember, and, and Peter uh, was called, you know, went out and walked on the water for a bit, and then he promptly began to sink. This is in Matthew 14, verses 24 to 30. So, Julie, let's just get the context of this scripture. Okay, so after the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, Jesus puts his disciples on a ship, he goes to a mountain to pray, and sometime after 3 a.m., we're told this bad wind kicks up. They see a shadowy figure on the water, and they're terrified. So we'll pick it up in Matthew 14, verse 27. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it's I, do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Okay. This is a great example of rejecting the positive. Now think about this. The wind and the waves were there before he focused on them. We tend to get what we focus on. And think about this when we reject the positive. When you reject the positive, you're going to get what you focus on. 
and it's never anything good. Peter ignored would have, what would have kept him afloat. Now, let's think about this. There are wind and waves at the beginning. They're all worried about it. They see right. Jesus walking on the water. They don't know who he is, and they're scared. There are still wind and waves. Jesus identifies himself. There's wind and waves. Jesus says to Peter, come, come to me. There's still wind and waves. Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. And guess what? There's still wind and waves. And then he stops looking at Jesus. And what does he look at? He goes, oh, no, look, there's wind and waves. <laughs> well, they were there the whole time. So he stopped paying attention to what would keep him afloat and paid attention to what would sink him. So the reality, he rejected the positive. And in our lives, we need to keep that focus on Jesus or we sink. We reject the positive of Jesus being in our lives and it makes us sink. So the reality is our lives can be tumultuous. In spite of our troubles, our Lord and Master can hold us up in our storms if we allow ourselves to focus on his presence in those experiences. Let's look at Matthew 14 a little bit further, verses 31 to 33. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Focusing on the positive and not rejecting it brings us to safety. Now, look, that doesn't mean our experiences are going to miraculously and our traumas are miraculously going to cease, but we will have the help and the encouragement and the direction that we need through them if we decide not to reject the positive, not to reject the spirituality that's in our lives. Folks, this is really, really an important thing, and it's so easy to reject the positive because somehow how or other we are more comfortable dwelling on the negative, dwelling on what can't be, rather than what is by God's grace. We keep seeing the wind and the waves instead of Jesus in front of us. Don't reject the positive. So how do we do this? You know, let's, let's look at, Julie, neutralizing distortions and refocusing on reality in relation to our rejecting the positive. I will work at being mindful of God's grace and providence in my life, especially when I'm overwhelmed. To focus on his grace and providence is to focus on the most positive view possible of my troubled experiences. So in the middle of my troubled experiences, what's the best thing to focus on? The fact that his grace and his providence is at work. That's not going to change the experience, but it Mm -hmm. changes our view of the experience. And we don't no longer reject the positive. And you know what happens when you accept the positive? Strength, courage, fortitude even enthusiasm, where there was none, because we're accepting the positive. Romans 8, 28 is a great verse for this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. All things. But do you believe it? Or do you want to reject that positive as well? I mean, you've got to make a choice here. God can use me for his purposes if I accept the reality of his providence. His purposes are there to be worked, but I have to accept his providence to be able to do that. So that means I, I, have, I have complete faith that my steps are being overruled. Yes. And if it's something's being allowed to happen, then it's because he's allowing it and it's an experience I need to learn. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Let's move on to our next automatic thought and distortion. This is a big one. This is catastrophizing. And again, this comes from the Self-Esteem Workbook by Glenn R. Schiraldi, PhD, just a snippet of his description. 
When you believe that something is a catastrophe, you tell yourself that it is so horrible and awful that I can't stand it. In telling ourselves this, we convince ourselves that we are too feeble to cope with life. For example, I couldn't stand it if she were to leave me. It would be awful. Although many things are unpleasant, inconvenient, and difficult, we really can stand anything short of being steamrolled to death, as psychologist Albert Ellis has said. So one might think, I don't like this, but I certainly can stand it. So catastrophizing is a big thing, and it happens easily because we look at the worst possible scenario. I had an experience with a, with a very wonderful, faithful Christian sister uh, a little while ago. And uh, she is, is a single mom, and she works really hard. She's a really great mom. Well, anyway, somehow or other, DCF, the Department of, of Children and Families, got involved in, in her parenting, and she panicked. And all of a sudden, it was like, they're going to take my child from me. What did I do? How is it that I'm a bad parent? And, and she just looked at this, and she, in no way, in no way, was a bad parent. So we had to sit and talk. We had to remove the, the feelings, replace them with facts. We had to accept the positive, and then we had to say, the catastrophe that you're, you're focusing on is not real. When they come, and they will, work with them. Show them everything. Answer everything honestly, and watch what mm -hmm. happens. And it's a long process, but you know, the end result was the people at that department toward the end said, I don't know why we were here in the first place. We're closing um. this. So the catastrophizing, we focus on things and it just generally just doesn't happen. Yeah, it's extremely rare that the worst possible thing happens, but that's where our mind automatically jumps to. Now, I wanted to, Rick, bring a disclaimer out. We want to be sensitive to people experiencing cognitive disorders and not blame them for their feelings, because for those who have suffered great trauma, for example, simplistic advice like, well, just don't think like that anymore, that's not going to work. And there's no shame in asking for help. No, there isn't. As a matter of fact, there's great value in asking for help. And sometimes if you have these things happening, sometimes you need medication and you need counseling. Yes, go get it. In my experience, those things are incredibly valuable to be able to cope and to move forward in life. So let's look at the distortion here for catastrophizing. Because we don't know what our immediate future will be, <laughs> we assume the worst. And this next part is really important. Listen to this. We create a set of future conclusions that frame our present challenges as unbearable, and we fold under their perceived pressure. So you know how I pre-apologize? Yeah. Here we pre-fold under pressure from an imaginary catastrophe that never happens. Exactly. That puts more pressure on us than necessary. Yeah, because it's not real. That's right. Cat That's a, that was a real knock on the noggin there. Catastrophizing makes what's not real overwhelmingly scary. The, apostle, the apostles depended on Jesus. Here's an example. But even when he was with them, they sometimes catastrophized their immediate future. Let's go back to the Sea of Galilee. Seems like there's a lot of trouble with water. One night, a storm <laughs> suddenly arose on the Sea of Galilee. Julie, Mark 4, 36 to 38. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? See, fair fear can magnify our challenges to the point of burying our faith. Their, their expectation is we're dying. And yet Jesus Christ 
the Messiah is on the boat with them. They didn't put that together. The reality here, here's the reality. We have been bought with a price, and that's the price of Jesus' sacrifice. Therefore, whatever catastrophe we perceive to be overwhelming us, let us be aware that this experience is by God's own permission. He knows us and loves us and will not leave us unprotected. His Son is with us in our boat. And we find that in Mark 4, verses 39 to 41, to wrap this piece up. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. Jesus not only calmed the sea, and we all look at that and say, whoa, that's a great miracle. Think about this. Jesus slept through the storm. Now, how is it he could do that? He slept through the storm while the apostles were panicked for their lives. Why? Jesus lived in God's providence. He knew what he was here for. He knew his time was protected. He didn't, audit, he didn't on purpose go into that storm. It happened, it came up, and he knew God's providence and protection was there. His apostles had not yet learned how powerful that providence can be. So maybe we don't know how powerful God's providence can be if we're Christians. We need to learn that. We need to grow into that. We need to grow and mature as Christians so we don't catastrophize because we are in God's hands. So Julie, let's go to neutralizing these distortions and refocusing on reality. Again, you neutralize by refocusing on reality in relation to catastrophizing. I will strive to keep my awareness of God's powerful and loving providence vital as I face those things that look like catastrophes. I will stay in the present and let God handle my future. <laughs> That's so incredibly important. I will stay in the present, leave the future to God, and that takes away your permission to catastrophize. When we don't allow ourselves into the future, we can't create catastrophe. We just have to deal with the present. Because when we catastrophize, we're telling that we know better than God. Yes, exactly. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So here, and Trish just left me a note, well, what happens when catastrophes do happen? Okay, then they're real. Then they're real. And this scripture you just read says, whatever the catastrophe is, it's not bigger than you're able to handle. Let's not create catastrophes that are in our mind. Let's deal with the real ones that actually happen in life and rely on God's providence to walk us through them. You see, there is no better life and health insurance than God's providence. And you can't find that anywhere else but through scripture, through Christ, and we need to apply it. So this catastrophizing takes the reality away, and it takes God's ability to work with us, and it replaces it with our own imagination. Think about that. Which one do you want? Some of the greatest catastrophes of our lives happen because we buy into a future that doesn't happen. How do we manage our self-defeating thoughts, though, when it comes to comparing ourselves to others? All right, different subject now. Here again, we need to be very cautious. Our tendency can be to draw illegitimate comparisons that have no chance of being helpful. No chance, no chance of being helpful. It's convenient to view ourselves and others through a lens that unfairly picks and chooses the comparison criteria. So what's the end result of this? The end result 
is self-defeating thoughts. That's a terrible end result if you haven't noticed. We want to stay away from that. And don't forget to get the free CQ Rewind show notes for this episode, where we'll have all the information we've been talking about ready for you to review. We've taken the notes for you. You can text one word, CQ Rewind, to number 22828. That's text CQ Rewind, one word, to number 22828 to get the show notes emailed to you every week. Or you can find them at our website, ChristianQuestions.com, and on our free app. So, and that's important, especially with a subject like this. There's a lot of details here and a lot of tools that we're, we're attempting to put out in a scriptural fashion. Let's go to our next automatic thought and distortion, and this is unfavorable comparisons. So if catastrophizing wasn't bad enough, let's listen to this. Unfavorable comparisons from the Self-Esteem Workbook by Glenn R. Schiraldi, Ph.D., a snippet on his description. Suppose you had an unusual magnifying glass that magnified some things like your faults and mistakes, or the strengths of others, and shrunk others, like your strengths and the mistakes of others. In comparison to others, you would always seem inadequate or inferior, always coming out on the short end of the stick. A way to challenge this distortion is to ask, why must I compare? Why can't I just appreciate that each person has unique strengths and weaknesses? Another's contributions are not necessarily better, just different. So remember our theme text was in Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul was saying, I want to do what's good, but I don't, and I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. I mean, come on, if the great Apostle Paul had this problem, I I don't have any chance. (laughs) Unfavorable comparisons. Here we go. All right. (laughs) Which one of us? Yeah, seriously, which one of us can compare to the Apostle Paul anyway? All right. God didn't call me to be Paul. He called me to be the best Rick that he could help me become. He called you to be the best Julie that he could help you to become. See, we distort reality when we make comparisons that make us look bad. We're just feeding a fantasy that has a nightmarish ending and takes us out of being able to have God use us. So, Julie here, you know, in in this scenario, social media is a tremendous place for unfavorable comparisons because people look perfect on social media and they're not yeah our digital self it's carefully curated to highlight preferred characteristics shall we say you know social social anxiety is created there's um, all kinds of studies being done now to people that are comparing themselves to those that they perceive are better than me and they look better and they're having a better time than me it's not uncommon for people to Photoshop themselves into exotic locations to impress others online. There are companies who will digitally alter your photos to make it seem like you're living this glamorous, well-traveled life, even telling you what outfit to wear to make the fake background more believable. So when you post this, people will admire you. Ooh. Oh, no, no, no. How sad this is, because what we do is we, is we, we attempt to fool ourselves, and we attempt to fool everyone else, and there's no value in this whatsoever. It makes everybody else feel bad. And, and you know what? It doesn't make you feel good. You can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm showing them something. No, you're not. You're showing them that you're a loser sitting in your own house, and, and you, you have decided to create an image that's not true. You have shown them a lie about your life. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. Let's be honest with what's happening here. What's this distortion here, this distortion of unfavorable comparisons? I am simply not as good as others. Mm -hmm. I just take up space. There is always someone with better knowledge, more wisdom, better looks, more experience. 
and better ideas than me. And right, and you can find them all on social media until you look at the, the lives. Folks, don't fall for the trap of looking at, at, a, at, a, at a little glimmer of somebody's life that they put there because none of us is going to show the worst parts of our lives, how the bad day you had at work and the argument you had with your spouse and how, uh, how you're behind on your mortgage. Nobody is going to talk about that on social media. We don't talk about reality. We talk about the, the uh, a perception, and it doesn't do anybody any good. So how do we deal with unfavorable comparisons? 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 16. For the body is not one member, but many. And if the foot says, well, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. Is it not for this reason, any the less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. Is it not for this reason, any the less a part of the body? Okay, so here's a newsflash here. What, what 1 Corinthians is telling us. First newsflash, there is somebody better than you. Okay, there is. Uh-oh. <laughs> Second newsflash, it's supposed to be that way. And it's okay. It's not about me being compared to you and you being compared to me. The reality here is this. God does not judge us by using others as a measuring stick. That's not how it works. Instead, God blesses us with an ability to contribute in a way that we are suited for. Doesn't matter what you're suited for. God gives me the ability to contribute in a way that I am suited for. Let's continue 1 Corinthians 12, 17 to 20. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And I like to say, be the spleen. (laughs) If that's what God wants me to be, then I'm going to be the best spleen I can be. And I shouldn't be comparing myself to others because the only one I really want to please is God. And that's the key. That's the key to this unfavorable comparison issue and challenge. Once we stop comparing and instead accept the grace of our calling, we can then focus on the value that we can give and receive. Our value is lost when we unfairly compare ourselves to others. Our value is lost, and then we are, we are nothing in the hands of God instead of something. And we're not going to argue with the architect and say, well, gee, God, I wasn't properly placed. Yeah, that's probably not a good argument to have. <laughs> that's, boy, that's an argument you're never going to win. Right. Uh, so neutralizing distortions and refocusing on reality, how do we do that in relation to these unfavorable comparisons? I will focus on playing my part, and I'll also focus on encouraging others to play their part, because the better we all are in fulfilling our roles, the more effective the body of Christ will become. So if I focus on doing what I can within my capacity, I get out of the comparison thing. And let me focus on helping you do the best you can. And even if what you do is more out front than what I do, great! Let me help you with that, because that's part of how a body works. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 29. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. There you have it. Your calling, 
we have to be humble in this. God chose us as weak, okay? So when, with these unfavorable comparisons, if you feel less than others, thank you. Great. It's good to have you here because most of us, we're all like that. So we're all the same. Let's just do what God would have us to do, develop in the way he would have us to develop. Next automatic thought and distortion is overgeneralizing from the self-esteem workbook, Lenar Schiraldi, PhD, uh, a snippet of his description. Overgeneralizing is deciding that negative experiences describe your life completely. For example, I always ruin everything. I always get rejected in love. No one likes me. Everybody hates me. Such global statements are unkind, depressing, and usually inaccurate to some degree. The antidote is to use more precise language. Sometimes people don't approve of me. Sometimes some people do. Be a healthy optimist. Expect to find small ways to improve situations and notice what's going well. You know, one of the things that we need to worry, worry about here, and I say worry and I mean worry, is this overgeneralizing can be a very, very, very serious issue. It can be a mental game that, uh, you know, people always do this and I never do that, and, and, and you just overgeneralize to the negative side. But this can also become something that really brings us to a point where our self-value, we, we can no longer find it. And people become suicidal when they get to a point where they can't see their own self-value anymore. We are valuable before our Father. Don't ever, ever forget it. And if you are going down that road of overgeneralizing to the point where you're feeling like the world is better off without you, please talk to somebody who you trust, who can help you find yourself again, who can maybe go with you to seek out some kind of help. It is so, so important. Don't go down this road. Julie, what's the distortion here? You know, when we're not going that far down the road, what's the distortion we all have to be aware of anyway? I feel that I'm always a disappointment because I can never measure up to God's standards. And such a perspective makes us doubt that we have any value, especially in God's eyes. Okay. It makes us doubt our value, especially in God's eyes. Well, look, We've given you examples all along the way. We're not going to give you an actual scriptural example uh, of, of this distortion, but we do have lots of scriptural ammunition for this distortion because it, it, it's so easy to take a piece of a statement of scripture and flash it as proof of our feeling of unworthiness. For instance, Julie, let's go to Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, see, there it is. I'm unworthy. Let's go to Isaiah 64.6. For all of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. See, there it is. There's proof. I'm too far gone before God. I should just disappear like dust in the wind. What about Romans 12, 3? For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. See, there you go. I'm going to stop you in the middle of the scripture. See, proof that my negative self-evaluation is correct. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. See, folks, we can take pieces of scripture and feed this, this nastiness of, of this overgeneralizing. But you know what? We need to finish the scripture. Let's finish Romans 12, 3. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So it looks like overgeneralizing us can take us to this point of, well, what's the point of trying? Because I'll never be good enough for God. But that takes away all of our options for success. 
and we make it so that it's really not possible to succeed. So why even start, you know, why even try to make a difference? So it's kind of like when I like the expression, when we're even a light at the end of the tunnel is just a train coming the other way. Yeah. You know, we're, we're doomed. Well, you know, and you said, you know, we're, we're not good enough before God. You know what? We're not. We can't be. That's why we have Jesus. That's the whole point of Jesus having died for us and covering us with his yes. righteousness. We're not good enough, but let's accept the reality. Here's the reality. We were all sinners destined for death before God until Jesus bought us back from Adam's sin. Now, we should generalize. If you want to generalize, generalize this. Generalize the power of Jesus' ransom and use this fact to accurately assess where we stand. You know, we quoted 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. I just want to go to, to, to back to some of those points because it's so important here. Consider your calling, brethren. You were called, you're called because God sees value in you. And he says, not many wise according to the flesh, not many uh, mighty, not many noble. He doesn't call the best of the best. He calls those with the heart for God. Why? So that no man may boast before God. We're all sinners. We're not worthy, period. But through Christ, we are valuable in the hands of God. God has in the past, does in the present, and will in the future use those who are less esteemed in the world for his divine purposes. Let's not overgeneralize our unworthiness. Let's maximize Christ's worthiness and our position that we are granted by grace in that. Because in spite of our weakness, I think we can do wonderful things. And that yes. gives God the glory right. by not doing it. It's almost insulting, I would think. It is. It is. We are insulting our creator by doing this. We really Oof, are. This so, is serious. It is. It is. Neutralizing distortions and refocusing on reality in relation to this overgeneralizing, what is it? When I pronounce my self-worth through negative generalizations, I usurp God's authority and judgment in my life. I will work on giving God the glory in my everyday by trusting his care for me is because he sees me as valuable. Do you want to usurp God's authority in your life or do you want to no. let him stay in charge? Yes. Then stop the overgeneralizing saying I'm not good enough. Okay. Ugh. Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Leaving those other things behind, pressing on toward those things that lie ahead, relying on God's grace for help in all of our times of need. This is how we cope. Forget the overgeneralizing that says I'm not good enough. We all know we're not, but we all know Jesus is, and we have a position in him. See, the more we uncover how easily we defeat ourselves, the more we need to seek out God's grace for help. How do we protect ourselves from ourselves when it comes to placing blame for issues in our lives? <laughs> blame. Blame can be a powerful tool. Put it in, in, in the right place, and it can be a tool of reconciliation and healing. Put it in the wrong place, and blame becomes a deceptive tool. It creates a false sense of security. Blame inappropriately treats others unfairly, and we then approach reality in an ungodly manner. Blame is a big deal, and it's a very difficult thing for us to deal with because a lot of times we don't think about it. It just happens. We, we just kind of almost knee-jerk way we blame others. So let's get back to the self-esteem workbook on blame by Glenn R. Schiraldi, uh, PhD.
Blaming puts all of the responsibility for negative events on something outside of yourself. The problem with blaming, much like catastrophizing, is that it tends to make us think of ourselves as helpless victims who are too powerless to cope. The antidote to blaming is to acknowledge outside influences, but to take responsibility for your own welfare. However, when one takes responsibility, it is for a behavior or a choice, not for being bad to the core. There is no judging the core self here, only behaviors. So blaming is the opposite of what we might call personalizing. That's where we take all the blame, like it's all my fault. But with blaming, it's never my fault. And blaming shows up a lot within marriage and divorce. <laughs> and we want to take realistic, that's the key word here, realistic responsibility for our experiences. And that's difficult for many of us. And I'm going to put myself in that too, because I, I tend to blame others for anything that goes wrong. So, so the idea of blame is blame is appropriate when it's appropriately placed. And what we need to do is realize that, yes, I am to blame more often than I'd like to believe. So when are those times and will I rise up and stand up uh, and, and, and be a true Christian and accept that and do what I need to, to, to work on, work on it to, to, to correct it? So, Julie, let's go to the distortion when it comes to blaming. The it's their fault, I'm the way I am reaction takes our personal responsibility and lays it before anyone or anything else. This presents us with a false sense of relief regarding our circumstances and rekindles a fire of resentment, jealousy, and anger. So when we falsely blame, we kindle this fire of jealousy, resentment, and anger. Blame falsely placed is destructive, destructive, destructive. We need to be careful that we are appropriately accepting our personal responsibility. Really, really good scriptural example of this is Aaron, Moses and Aaron back in, in the wilderness. Aaron caved under the pressure of the people, and he gave them an idol to worship in the absence of Moses because Moses was up on the, the mountain getting the law. Uh, Julie, let's go to Exodus chapter 32, verse 19, then verses 21 to 24. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses's anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Then Moses said to Aaron, why did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they're prone to evil for they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Oh, dear, poor Aaron. Like, give me the jewelry. Poof, calf appeared. He's rationalizing, and he's minimizing sin, and he's blaming the people for his letting this happen. Yeah, he was the leader left in charge. That's really the bottom line. And he did report truth, but he did not include his personal and sinful role in his report to Moses. Conveniently left that out and allowed the blame of others to mm -hmm. look like the culprit. Well, that's not the reality. We know that, and we're going to get to what, what uh, Moses had to do afterwards. But let's, let's look at the reality in terms of blaming, and then we'll get back to Moses and Aaron. The reality is there is no escaping accountability. So if you're placing blame places it doesn't belong, it'll catch up with you. 
There's no question about it. It will find you. It will come to us sooner or later. And the sooner we accept the results of our thoughts and our actions, especially when we place false blame, the better off we end up being. Going back to Aaron. Aaron was at fault for his lack of leadership. The consequences of the people's sins would be severe as a result of this. We're just going to drop in back to Exodus 32, verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, to be a derision among their enemies. And what happened here is many of the people died. Many of the people died that day, and Aaron basically was the one that allowed this to happen. And he was held accountable for what he did. Now, the thing that we need to understand is Aaron didn't rise up and take the responsibility. And then when it was brought to the point of accountability, he still didn't rise up and take the responsibility. It had to be shown to him in a forceful manner. Sometimes when we are blaming and making it everybody else's fault but our own, that's what happens. We need that proverbial slap in the face to say, wow, look what I've done. That's hard. Remember King David after his sin with Bathsheba and he's kind of going along his merry way and Nathan comes to him and he tells him a parable, he tells him a story and David says that man in that story needs to, to be punished severely and Nathan says you are that man. Yeah. The blaming of all the circumstances had to be told to him in a different kind of way. So how do we neutralize when we blame others, neutralizing distortions and refocusing on reality in relation to blaming. When I spread blame that belongs to me, I am speaking and acting dishonestly. I will fight those actions and thoughts as I look above for help and guidance. I will remind myself that my life rests solely in the hands of God. And Rick, I never thought of blaming somebody else as acting dishonestly. So I really have to pay attention to what I say and what I do, because when I'm in an emotionally charged situation, my defense mechanisms will kick in like involuntarily. And I'll be like, well, that's not my fault. I didn't, I didn't do it. I was never there. I, I didn't leave those lights on. It's just an instinct. And so we need to control that and understand that that's what we're doing because it's dishonest. It is. It is dishonest. And it's something that we can do something about. So we right. need to be aware. It's that Christian mirror that we keep talking about. Look in the mirror. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 helps us to do this neutralizing and refocusing. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There it is. Set your mind on the appropriate things. And you know what? Accountability comes so much more easily because we're looking to do God's will. We're looking to be humble before him and we can get to a point of accepting responsibility when it comes to blaming. Okay, our final automatic thought and distortion for today is, and this is a good one. Well, no, This is my favorite one. This is actually a really bad one. It's the fairy tale fantasy from the Self-Esteem Workbook by Gary R. Schiraldi, PhD. The fairy tale fantasy means demanding the ideal from life. That's not fair, or why did that have to happen? Often means the world shouldn't be the way it is. In reality, bad and unfair things happen to good people, sometimes randomly, sometimes because of the unreasonableness of others, and sometimes because of our own imperfections. To expect that the world be different is to invite disappointment. To expect that others treat us fairly when they often have their own ideas about what is fair is also to invite disappointment. 
Yeah. And I think we could easily dedicate an entire podcast on how life does not meet our expectations. And an entire segment would be about romance and how your happily ever after isn't. And if you're single, you want to be married. If you're married, you wish you weren't. Your job, your kids, your health, your stress, your boredom, your pain. This isn't how you would write your story. Because, see, I was promised a white horse and a big shiny castle with cute mice and a fairy godmother. So why is life so unfair? So the fairy tale fantasy takes us out of the expectation for what reality can bring and puts us in a place where we're bound to be disappointed and frustrated. And that takes us away from the beauty of whatever our reality is. It's a, it's a very diabolical, it's a diabolical distortion that we have to be very, very careful of and realize. And it happens much more than we'd like to think. So when we look at the distortion, Julie, what is that specific distortion? I follow Jesus, so I should be able to have what I want, right? This <laughs> will make me happy. Okay. So this fairy tale distortion is where we see God as like a magic lamp to give us everything we want that we think is going to solve all of our problems. Good. So that means we get to control God because Aladdin <laughs> got to control the lamp, right? There's the diabolical part. And that's the fairy tale fantasy. That's what we have to watch out for. A good example of this in Scripture happened in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, then 37 to 40. These are James and John, two of Jesus' closest apostles. Listen, listen to what, what they ask him. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> Think about this. Jesus, we got a question, and whatever we ask, you, you need to say yes. I mean, this sounds like a little kid, you know, talking to their parent. Whatever we ask, we just want you to say yes. This is that fairy tale fantasy in place. So what is yeah. it they what, do they, what do they ask? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Wow. That's a big request. In your glory, we want to not just be with you. We want to be on your right hand and your left hand, the two highest symbols of power and authority. That's wow. what they asked for. Such a request shows a lack of maturity. And the fairy tale fantasy, it really is a lack of mature thinking. We want the best rewards without considering the cost, without considering the reality. So the reality here is simple. I am called to serve. That's what Jesus did. Let me acquiesce to Jesus' kind of service and leave the rest to God. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. The reality of this fairy tale fantasy is, let me just walk in Jesus' footsteps and not think about or worry about anything else. Jesus listened to this very childish request from two of his wonderful apostles, and he handled it with grace and with love. So let's go back to uh, John. Um, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 35. Let's go to verses 38 to 40. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So he gently says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea about the difficulty of the road that you are about to embark on. Are you able to, to bear the difficulty? And said, yes, we are. He says, okay, you will. 
You will. But by the way, I have no authority to give you what you asked for because it's beyond you. The Father decides that. And that's the way we need to leave our future in God's hands. That's the answer to this fairy tale fantasy. Leave the future in God's hands. Don't catastrophize it, make it worse than it ever can be. Don't have the fairy tale fantasy and make it bigger than it ever can be. Leave it in God's hands. Do the work that's before you, and then absolutely leave the rest in God's hands. Neutralizing distortions and refocusing on reality, Julie, in relation to the fairy tale fantasy. Let's begin to wrap this up. I will not demand the ideal from life. Instead, I will focus on putting my own best effort into walking in the footsteps of Jesus wherever they may lead. If I'm faithful to this effort, it will produce my ideal life. You don't need a fairy tale. You need your ideal life by, by, by submitting to God's providence. Final scripture, Julie, 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So here we have it, folks. We're wrapping this up, and we're looking at these distortions. And what we're seeing is that they're easy. They happen to us regularly. And we can fight them. We can put them in perspective, but we have to be scriptural, we have to be honest, and we have to be humble. And folks, if these things are overwhelming you, maybe you need some extra help. And that's good. That's okay. Recognize that and get the help. Talk to somebody you trust and together find the kind of help that you might need. For the rest of us who might not be in that position, let's make sure that we are focusing on the most important thing, and that is to honor God and our thoughts our words, and our deeds, and to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. All of these other things, we are valuable in the, in the hands of God. He called us. Let that value ring true in your daily life. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, is it ever right to judge your brother? Is it ever right to judge your brother? Scriptures seem to say different things about it. Well, well, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>